Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we get to speak with Matthew Cooney from Nickerson PR. Matthew has built and scaled social media communities for iRobot, Monster, and the Pycoort Institute for Learning and Memory. Prior to joining Nickerson, Matthew served as the subject matter expert on virtual reality technology for Dell EMC. Matt, welcome aboard. Thank you very much for having me, Fraser. So, Matt, in the virtual reality and augmented reality, how did you get started in the technology space? Well, for me personally, I worked at a couple of different organizations that had a technological focus, whether it was consumer electronics at iRobot or Monster, which a lot of people wouldn't really think of naturally as a big data company, but it still very much is in the tech space. So my role in organizations like that was as social media manager. So it was up to me to grow and engage the community. And I ended up working at uh, Dell EMC as a product manager and a product marketing manager. And the product that I was tasked with managing and marketing was engagement. So for the education services branch of Dell EMC, I was involved in creating and managing mechanisms to help engage students of our technology and concepts. So I've been blessed to experience tech, as it were, broadly speaking, from a variety of different perspectives. Cool. So the things that you're involved with now really center around virtual reality and augmented reality. And for listeners out there, how do we distinguish between the two? Sure. So virtual reality is the construction of an entirely new virtualized environment. It's one that you're going to immerse yourself into. We typically can access that in three ways. One is a web-based experience where it is a second dimension, but as a web-based experience, you can you know, enjoy that through a desktop or a laptop and click your way through a virtual environment. It's typically a self-guided tour. Then there's also a handheld or headset-mounted engagement where it pretty much is what it sounds like. The uh, lower end of the actual viewing product spectrum is something like Google Cardboard. So that's maybe $20. You're putting your phone in there and you're holding it up to your head. And the key distinction is you've gone beyond that 2D or two-dimensional experience, and you're actually immersing yourself. If you were to look up or down or right to left behind you, you are completely in that environment. And then the high end of the product spectrum is something like an HTC Vive or Oculus Rift. And that's a, a head-mounted display. So it's a little bit heavier, you know, maybe seven or eight ounces, and it's tethered typically to a hard drive. But the experience is typically more dynamic. So that's on the virtual side. Now, the augmented side is when you're taking a layer and putting it onto an existing space. So imagine you know, projecting. It doesn't have to be a flat surface. It could be anything. It could be your windshield in front of you, or it could be you know, the air floating in front of you. But you, you were actually layering some type of content onto that existing environment. Augmented reality, when I visualize it, I, I think back to the movie The Terminator when they showed the view from the Terminator and he's intersecting with the community and the bikers and so on. And he, he lists down a display of uh, possible responses to a question and then he's got different telemetry for different things. Is that along the same lines? Yeah, actually. It's funny because that's almost a combination of the two because you're immersing yourself in the Terminator's perspective and then there's layering of information onto that. So another pop culture example or two pop culture examples that I think speak to that, that are similar to that, are from Minority Report. If you remember that, the classic with Tom Cruise, where he has haptic gloves on and he's going through evidence in front of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. This is right before he 
discovers that he's about to be involved in a, a murder plot. I'm sorry for the spoiler alert uh, in case there's someone listening who hasn't seen it. Movie's 10 years old. I think we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. So the evidence is displaying itself in screens in front of him, and he's manipulating them. You know, he's putting out this haptic or sensory technology on his glove, and he's actually moving things around, and he's spinning things. And the projection in front of him, that's an example of augmented reality. And the other pop culture example is for fans of Iron Man, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. depiction of Tony Stark in his lab. You know, he has virtualized depictions of different components of the Iron Man suit. So he can project in front of him information about schematics, very similar to what you were describing, you know, where you have the telemetry and the drop-down responses and whatnot. Uh, he can project that into the physical space in front of him. Those are probably two of the more popular examples of augmented reality. So both tools, to me, the imagination, it's almost limitless what you can do. But from a practical perspective, what are the on-the-ground uses that you're seeing for virtual reality and augmented reality? Well, we're kind of, we're creeping into both spaces. You can see for VR, there are power players like the NBA, for example, if you want to stop for a moment and think about entertainment, they're hosting a game a week, or they did this previous season in a virtual environment. So, you know, when you're downloading, going to app platform, you download the NBA app and you're able to watch that in a virtual environment. There's also from a, not an entertainment, but an education perspective, Google is an organization that's backing an effort. They have, again, their cardboard handheld viewer. So, you know, this is a branded experience for them and they're putting that into classrooms. So instead of giving, you know, geography lesson where we're talking about, for example, Machu Picchu, you could use the handheld viewer and actually experience the location in an immersive way where you're standing there, you know, you're on the flat plateau, you're on a field, you're looking at the ruins, you're looking at the uh, mountains all around you. So it, it offers a pretty significant upgrade over, you know, a purely text or, um, communicated experience where, you know, you're actually immersing yourself in that environment. Now for augmented reality, you know, I think that as a marketer, you know, from a campaign perspective, one example that really, really leaps to mind is Pokemon Go. And everyone keeps pointing to that as, the, you know, the Niantic campaign that was particularly explosive in terms of engagement. I think that it generated something along the lines of $600 million in its first three months. But that was, you know, that traced to gaming you know, which is an industry that is certainly putting both technologies to use. And that, I think, was a powerful example of connecting with and activating an entire passionate fan base around a particular campaign. So, you know, for augmented reality, you can, you can imagine that having seen that, you can really tap into people's imaginations about how that can be extrapolated pretty much anywhere. It just seems like anything where you're able to measure and document performance on a second-by-second -second basis and to be able to make adjustments on a second-by-second -second basis, it could apply to sports, military, business, uh, in all sorts of fields. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, imagine you're navigating a city and any information that's pertinent to you, you know, regarding the status of your car, Maybe you're running low on gas. Maybe you want to avoid traffic. Your environment is augmented and it's communicating with you. And so think of it in terms of a response environment. And it's providing you with information in real time. So that absolutely, without question. So as we sort of deal with an on-the-ground situation as it relates to your day job, you work for Nickerson and develop a lot of engagement programs around different concepts. Talk a little bit about that and how these two tools are helpful to your experience. Absolutely. So yeah, having referenced education before, I came from Dell EMC where we were trying to put together a virtual classroom, you know, where people were immersing themselves in that environment. At Nickerson, not a lot of people would consider real estate 
at the forefront of adoption. And it seemed clear to me as, as far as structures, cities, how we're living and how we're working, this was an absolute slam dunk, I guess, as far as adoption. And Nickerson is very forward thinking in that regard. You know, the, a passionate enthusiast for the technology. And what we've done is we've been able to create, for example, virtual tours of environments. So if, if you know, someone wants to visit an environment wherever they are, if they want to visit a, a housing development, if they want to visit, you know, a condo or whatnot, they can do that remotely, either through a handheld or head-mounted display or through a web-based VR experience. So we've been able to do that. So from my perspective, creating VR and AR as a product and a service is extremely exciting because, as you mentioned before, the possibilities really are limitless. I mean, you can you can provide people with that immersive tour ahead of time, not just of an existing space, but of a space that's in development. And you can also activate floor plans, blueprints, and whatnot. You can make them come to life through augmented applications. So you can see, you can just simply, you know, look at, at a plan for a building and with an augmented reality application, you know, hold up your iPad or your phone, you can see a rendering of what it will look like, what that neighborhood will look like. And, you know, furthermore, you can augment the surfaces within it. So you can have, you know, if you're leaving, for example, a building, the building can communicate to you visually what's most important to you at that time. You know, again, traffic statistics, what the weather's like, news of the day, et cetera, et cetera. So it's extremely exciting to be at this particular juncture of the technology's adoption and know that I'm in an organization that's uniquely positioned from both the development side as well as the marketing side to not only put it into play, but also celebrate the story and the potential for both technologies. One of the things that in sort of researching and talking to you about the space, I kind of got the idea that if you could see the tour of an apartment before you bought it, that that would help close the loop or, or reduce the time between interest and sale. But the part that really piqued my interest more than anything else was that to me, uh, the idea that you can prospectively make decisions on development ahead of time vis-a-vis augmented reality and virtual reality, in a sense, testing to see whether a project is going to work before it is actually even committed to, that to me, I think, is going to be a real seismic change agent for the real estate world. Yeah, I would agree completely. I think, imagine convening a focus group, for example, you know, on the highest level, where you're demoing what your concept of a particular environment is at any given juncture, and, and you can get feedback about what it is that people need, you know, what they want. If you're farther along in the development process, you, you can walk people through and get feedback about how they ought to develop the space, how they ought to augment it. But from an augmented reality perspective, you can have the different components of the structure communicate to you, you know, if there are flaws of any kind, what the technical specifications of any particular component are, uh, how the building is functioning you know, how well it is or where it needs to be improved. Um, All of those things will just disrupt the architecture, the engineering, and the development process in ways that we're, we're really just beginning to appreciate. Uh, and working for a bank, I looked at it and said, well, you know, this is something a developer would be sort of negligent if they didn't go through a process that dealt with these types of concepts. But even an underwriter might be able to have more of an opinion on what they're underwriting as much as sort of relying on the developer's vision. And so I could see the the data generated by these conceptual renderings uh, sort of flowing both ways. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Yeah, really, I think anyone who's involved in the process in any way can gain a much greater connection and appreciation of a project through immersion. So I think that that, to your point, our ability to then pull insights, both qualitative and quantitative out of it, I think they're going to have a powerful and positive impact to everyone involved. 
So as we try to get our arms around the different spaces in augmented and virtual reality, uh, who are the major players out there? I would assume the Amazons, Googles, Apples, et cetera, they're, they're making unbelievably concerted efforts. What does that entail? And, and who are the other people who are pretty novel in this space? Uh, Google is certainly at the forefront, as you, as you pointed out. They're coming at it from a very unique perspective because the information that they're really trying to, uh, I don't want to say corner, I mean, no one ever will be able to do this, but uh, they have the geolocation component. You know, they would through Google, Google Earth, Google Maps and whatnot. If you've ever run a search, probably on Google of a particular environment, uh, you've, you've gone through Google Maps and you've taken a Google Street View. So they're very deliberate in this. I think that for them, it will be an easy activation to then make that a relatively easy activation to make that an immersive environment. And then think of all the ways you can layer that. You can augment that virtual space or what we would call mixed reality. I mean, imagine putting referral opportunities, whether it's advertising, whether it's marketing. Imagine how you can develop that space once you're in it. And they're trying to circle the earth. From a product perspective, Apple is certainly, a lot of people are looking to them, how they're developing it. They have certainly perfected the concept of a product ecosystem. So how will they then improve upon or disrupt Google's first attempt at a real augmented reality device? You probably remember the Google Glass, which flamed out pretty spectacularly. So what will that become? Will Google do that or will Apple do that? And then last but not least, by any stretch of the imagination, is Facebook. In the social space, let's not forget, they have something at their disposal that nobody else has, and that is the largest social network on Earth, which just, just surpassed 2 billion people. We also, in terms of mobile adoption trends, are seeing that we're coming to peak mobile. I mean, there aren't that many more people to recruit. So the question becomes, you know, how do you engage them? And I think that Facebook tipped their hand pretty clearly back in 2012 when they bought the Oculus Rift headset, which was the Kickstarter project that Palmer Luckey started in his garage. And they're not shy about this. You know, one of their innovations is spaces where they're, they're creating environments where people can interact, you know, in a virtual environment. And to be honest, it's still pretty crude. I mean, the avatars that they're putting together are cartoonish, and they admit that. You know, at the F8 developer conference a couple months back, they, you know, they debuted this, and, and they're not shy about this. What they can do is if they can come up with that accessible product a common platform for people to interact and, you know, a programming interface where people can easily create applications. I think Facebook may be in the strongest position to really dominate the market at the outset. So I think that, you know, between Google, Apple, and Facebook, I think those are, are probably the organizations that are going to lead the way. It's startups, it's not going to be that. You know, startups won't have as great an impact as major power players will. So I look to what those three organizations do. So what what are the main hurdles to adoption of these various technologies? I mean, they seem so they seem so important and interesting and can create so much scale for different organizations, but I'm sure there's a, a bunch of fear attached to it. What do you see are particular hurdles? Well, one of the things we're seeing is an untethering of the most powerful headsets. You know, and I had mentioned Google before. They have their own headset called Tango. The biggest bang for your buck, as it were, when you immerse yourself, without question, it's the higher end headsets, you know, between Google Cardboard and the HTC Vive and Oculus Rift, between those two is the Samsung Gear VR, which I have. And I love that. I think it's great. It's a standalone head-mounted display. You can just strap it to your head and you put your phone in. But I think it's going to have to be a, a robust experience 
to a sufficient degree. And that's the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift level. It's got to be there. It's got to be seamless, relatively speaking. And by that, I mean, you can't get sick. And that was a big, big problem, you know, at the beginning uh, with motion sickness. There was this kind of disconnect between what you were experiencing in a virtual environment and what you were experiencing in the virtual realm. So they've really closed that gap. And that has to do with something called refresh rate. You know, if it was 60 frames per second, which the first Oculus Rifts were, that was really kind of a motion sickness inducing experience. Now it's up over 100. That's kind of the threshold. That industry standard has been established. So once we have powerful headsets, once we've really streamlined the car sickness factor, I want to say our motion sickness factor, once we've done that, then we've got to have a common social environment where, you know, you and I could, for example, you know, watch Super Bowl 51. You could do that in a virtual environment, but could I do that with you? No, not yet. You know, beyond that, then there's a question of content. There's the applications that people need to develop. Um, And that's opening up for both VR and AR. But once that product ecosystem opens wide, not only will we be able to go watch Super Bowl 51 in VR, you and I could do it in Robert Kraft's booth, maybe even with Tom Brady or, you know, Tom and Giselle and you and I are sitting there with Bob and we're watching the game or we could maybe even play the game as Tom Brady. So when there's more content when there's a common environment, when there's better equipment and the process is, is fluid. And then I think then that's really, then that's when it will explode. I was going to say that uh, Bob Kraft will probably get sick of me, even in a virtual sense, if I start <laughs> k- kicking it to the wine cellar and, and, you know, going to the bottom floor looking for the good stuff. Well, yeah, where but, would you go? Uh, would you go to the U.S. Open? I mean, like... Um, I, I would love to for something like that. I would love to go to the various golf courses. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. For the U.S. Open, uh, I, it wouldn't even necessarily be a major. Net, although I would do that, the Masters would be a great testing point because I think it's a shared experience that a lot of golf fans would really like, uh, and to be able to experience that sort of between the ropes. I mean, one scary thing for something like that is then do you really need in-person stadiums? Uh, but, Great point. Great point. Uh, but from a but from a golf course, golf would be an ideal place to do it. I think TV, you lose the elevation, you lose some of the, the conditions associated with being outside and the, and the pressure and the noise that even at the micro level, you, you just can't quite get. But I think it's fascinating. I mean, it'd be really cool. So we talked a little bit about uh, – we alluded to this a bit before with your real estate example, but you know, artificial intelligence has gotten a lot of play lately as a major driver of innovation on all sorts of fronts. Where do you see that coming into play on the augmented reality slash virtual reality and maybe apply it to real estate as a nice tangible example? Sure, sure. I love that you brought that up because it's going to be huge. So I, I had an opportunity to give a talk about this. and. So I have a bone to pick with the term AI, and I, there are people that are far deeper in, into the concept, into the technology, who will disagree with me. I, I don't doubt this, but I, I think there's a big difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning. And to me, machine learning is the process and artificial intelligence is the result. You know what I mean? Right. And by that, I mean, if you're interacting with your phone right now, with app, like Apple's Siri, most people are familiar with Siri or some form of chatbot technology. And I mention this because it's becoming better at analyzing data, at crafting responses, at being more intuitive. So it's becoming more artificially intelligent. That to me is an extremely exciting concept because if you pick up your phone, if you've got your iPhone, you're interacting with Siri, it's an extremely transactional experience. You ask a question, you get an answer, et cetera. But you know, going beyond that, you're really you're not going to have an extended discussion or debate with Siri really about anything. And I think anyone who's tried that 
can appreciate the limitations of the technology as it currently stands. But to put that technology into a virtual environment or an augmented one, you know, where you're, you're projecting a hologram-style representation. So imagine a programmer has come up with the ability to access data in real time. Now, you can craft the physical manifestation of Siri to whatever you want it to be. Let me put it into context with some of the industries we were talking about before. Education. Like it's a U.S. history class. So everyone's, you know, they've got their Google Cardboard or Samsung Gear VR or they've got their HTC Vive and they're taking a history class. And what they want to do is, you know, they're they're talking about the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War. So instead of talking about the different political challenges that Abraham Lincoln faced leading up to the ultimate secession and uh, outbreak of the Civil War, why not put your headgear on and sit in the Oval Office of the White House in 1860 and talk with Abraham Lincoln? And imagine a chatbot technology that's so advanced that it's pulled in either real time or historically, it's pulled all the data out there about Abraham Lincoln and synthesized it into a vocabulary, an awareness for Abraham Lincoln that it can access every book ever written, every website, every movie. So you could sit there and, and have that multidimensional extended dialogue rather with Abraham Lincoln that doesn't exist now. And meanwhile, you're sitting there in the Oval Office and it's recreated faithfully. It's candlelit. Maybe a fire is burning. You know, maybe you can pull in other historical characters and have them debate. So I think that that's where I see that going in the virtual realm. And if you're familiar with Magic Leap, this kind of very secretive Florida-based augmented reality technology company, I hasten to say that because a lot of people are saying they're doing something new entirely, but no one knows. No one's ever seen it. So it's, it's still kind of shady. But imagine, as far as augmented reality is concerned, imagine you go to Gettysburg and you've got your Google Glass equivalent, whatever that becomes, and Abraham Lincoln is walking you through Gettysburg or, you know, you're there with Southern generals or the Northern generals and they're talking about their decisions. You know, they're talking about outcomes of particular scenarios. Maybe you're getting a deeper dive into, you know, a particular maneuver by either side. So I I can see an interactive experience within either immersive environment that we can't even fathom. But as far as real estate is concerned, I think that we'll see structures, whether it's buildings, whether it's cities, whether it's, you know, multifamily units, communicating with us. They'll be able to talk to us about concerns that we might have or the issues that the structure or the city or the development are facing. That, I think, is closer to reality than the previously mentioned chatbot scenario. I was going to say, it seems to me, just based on the Lincoln example you had, the next stage in touring a new property or a prospective property for a buyer or a lessor would be to strap on the virtual reality equipment and you can experience a prospective place virtually and, and have those conversations and have an idea of what the noise is like or what the sunlight is like and, and so on. And real estate agents better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of our developments is called Scotland Landing. It's not far from the Hanover Mall, which is right down the road in the highway. So who's to say that once you've gone through both levels of a particular property, like one of the townhouses on the site, who's to say that you couldn't then perhaps interact with icons that you're seeing and transport yourself to nearby amenities or see a layering of amenities within the space and then have, you know, have the manifestation of the, the realtor or the leasing agent or whomever interacting with those amenities and having the two sort of combine 
to give you the most immersive interactive experience possible. Well, I've just jokingly worried about the future of real estate agents, but I don't think they're going away. One of the things that, you know, with technology coming so quickly without a lot of time to consider the impact that these advances have, what are the things that are worrisome to you? And are there industries that are in the crosshairs where, you know, the jobs that are associated with them are just going to melt away? Um, What other issues do you really see that, that we should just think about as we move forward on this space? Well, one of them I think that a lot of people might not consider from the outset is cybersecurity. You know, if we're in a virtualized environment, what if that environment becomes compromised? You know, there's plenty of data to suggest that there's a profound emotional connection can be created and you could create false memories. So it's becoming difficult to distinguish or can be difficult to distinguish between a memory generated in a virtual environment and one generated in a physical one. So if you're doing that, then what happens if, for example, you're at a political rally? for a candidate. And that's, this is the primary means you have of either consuming news or interacting with a candidate. And what if that flow of information has been compromised? What if it's been hijacked? Everyone, I think, is familiar with the concept of fake news and alternative facts. So it'll be interesting to see if we can have a a secure environment and, you know, what that means. But another challenge I think we could face is a threat to empathy. And by that, I mean, what happens when we have the power to customize our environment to our specifications? Uh, Will we prefer that to the world that we share? And if we do, will it become more difficult for us to empathize with the challenges of others? So that's something I think that's worth considering because we may very well have the tools at our disposal to kind of naturally sequester ourselves in a way that we've never been able to. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, and uh, that's something for me to ponder. We alluded before to Facebook and and the use of uh, sort of augmented and virtual realities within a social media construct. And as you talk about how we interact with people and whether we're going to be able to be patient with things that aren't completely customized and tailored to us, what's the impact, sort of the short-range impact, I think to guess beyond a few years is folly, but the short-range impact as to how these technologies are going to deal with people who interact in social media and how is that going to push that world forward? I think what we'll see over the next two to three years in the very near term, and this will, again, this will be uh, fueled by Facebook, is it'll be twofold. One, the establishment of a common social platform. Think about all the time, not necessarily you, but maybe some of your listeners or people that they know, of those two billion people that are on Facebook, think about the amount of time that people actually spend in Facebook or on other social networks or websites. So imagine if that becomes a common experience in a virtual realm. And Facebook, I think, is clearly poised to gain the most by easily activating as possible uh, the audience that they already have. So I think that that we're going to see a rush toward the development of a common space. And again, I I think there are a variety of players that could establish it, but it's a question of who gets there first. So I I think that once that happens, then it, it will be a question of scaling the virtual environment from within. You know, we had talked about Abraham Lincoln or going to the U.S. Open to use that uh, Abraham Lincoln scenario. Imagine you picked the U.S. Open that you wanted to go to, you know, but never had a chance to see. Or maybe you and I wanted to go see the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So that once we see the scaling of programs and products and services within that virtual environment, then I think that the adoption curve will accelerate dramatically. I think we'll see a a pretty significant hockey stick effect. Interesting. I would assume that the hardware would keep up with that, but it sounds like you're talking about scenarios that require a lot of computing power and memory and so on. And while I think we're all believers in Moore's law, at a certain point, is the hardware going to keep up with the conceptualizations that we're coming up with? 
I think it will. For example, you know, at Nickerson, the, to put this in perspective, the product that we've put out there, the, you know, the web-based and the handheld and virtual tours, when you create that, when you record it, you know, when you're, when you're creating that experience, then that has to be processed in a way that can be experienced in an immersive way. And that takes place in the cloud. So I think to your point, if we're going to scale this to a massive scale, a massive communal experience, that may be a little bit different. You know, but in the near term, I think that the emphasis will be on creating, quote unquote, smaller experiences, maybe 100,000 or less. And by that, I mean a large concert, maybe a tour of a city, something like that, where the structure of the data is relatively confined. But I think that once we've scaled that, you know, once larger organizations like Amazon or Dell EMC, once they open up the space, once they make that available, then I think they will learn how to accommodate the computing power required to stitch together a virtual environment. Cool. How do we stay up to date on what Nickerson is doing and what you're working on? Well, I welcome you to come to NickersonPR.com. We have our blog, which is the ideas blog. So we're sharing, you know, insights about um, uh, virtual and augmented reality, emerging technologies, as well as other best practices, uh, you know, from across the marketing spectrum, whether it's PR or social media. But you can stay abreast of what we're doing there. And, you know, I'm certainly doing as much as I can to, to get out and spread the gospel, if you will, of VR and AR. So um, I, to that end, I very much appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and uh, talk about sort of the state of the technologies as they were and uh, what the potential is, really. And I think it's limitless. So it's, it's been very, very exciting to speak with you today. Very cool. Thank you very much, Matt, for coming on. Hopefully we don't turn into avatars within the next couple of weeks. Uh, or <laughs> If I'm able to choose mine, I don't know, Black Knight or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go anyway. with Casey from Casey and the Sunshine Band circa like 1977. I think that's when he was in his prime. Uh, that is pretty appropriate for you, if I recall <laughs> things correctly. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Anyway, thanks again, Matt. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks very much. We've been speaking with Matthew Cooney from Nickerson PR. Thanks for joining us for the Fraser Rice podcast. We look forward to you listening in on future podcasts as they will be coming out shortly. Thanks again and have a great day.